You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the investors agency and Debar. With over 20 years experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 13 of the Lazy Equity Podcast. In today's episode, I'm super excited to have Viola Ho and Crystal Patel from Sphinx Elphic Ho back on the show again. Now, for you guys listening, you would have heard last week's episode where we unpacked a ton of very useful information. There was too much information to go through in one episode. So uh, so this is essentially part two of uh, of last week's episode. So Viola and Crystal, thank you so much for uh, for coming on again. Great to see you again. Yeah, thank you, Bobby. I bet you guys are looking forward to... Well, do, do, do lawyers get a break over Christmas and, and New Year's? We absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we make sure of it. So but, I bet you guys but, are looking forward to it. But we're scheduling all your settlements. Yeah, we've seen that. So really appreciate it. And, and what we've tried to do this year as well, because we know it's been an extremely busy year for, for everyone involved. Where, where possible, we've tried to delay the settlements and unconditional dates to either bring them forward so before the christmas break or bring them after um after the christmas break where possible obviously we can't do that for every single deal but we've tried to do that as much as possible to make sure everyone gets a bit more of a break this year yeah australians are good they respect <laughs> the holidays not so much like that um in in hong kong oh you you guys don't get a break uh, hong kong doesn't close up over christmas or over december right only the public holidays Okay. Okay. And later on, I think we'll talk about about these settlement dates. You know, then we can discuss about the different issue there too. Hundred percent. Let's Kong do that. In Australia. Yes. Yeah, sure. Hundred percent. Well, look. Let's uh, let's get stuck into it. So, pretty much, there's there's a few questions we wanted to run through. Essentially, from after the unconditional process, because from last week we unpacked mostly the um everything before unconditional so i think today we're going to go through the unconditional process state by state and and i guess that first question that i had was assuming your finance or building and pest date lapses and you haven't satisfied those clauses does a buyer have a leg to stand on in any of the states and what are the implications if if that does happen yeah so i think it's important if if the contract does allow a clause making the contract subject to finance or obtaining finance or subject to obtaining a positive building and pest report that the purchaser is satisfied with, then hopefully before that date comes about, the purchaser would let their solicitor or conveyancer know that there's a chance that that date won't be met, okay, and an extension can be sought. That would obviously be the best advice, okay, so that's step one. Solicitor or conveyancer can definitely get that in writing in a request to the other side and make that happen. Now, if it gets to the point where the other side won't agree to an extension. So I think we should talk about that as well because it does sometimes happen. Yeah. Okay. You've got a couple of options. So let's say finance, for instance. So comes to that date, finance hasn't been granted. They need an extension, which mostly the extensions are normally needed by the bank. We'll make that clear. They normally need more time, which is why a finance clause most of the time isn't satisfied on time. Sure. Okay. So if it gets to that point, your financier needs more time. You've got a couple of options here. If the other side doesn't allow the extension, then you can provide notice, given it's before the the due date for that notice, that you can't obtain finance and you can terminate the contract. 
Most clauses for the contract across the board, if they do have that clause in them, depending on the wording, will allow for the return of the deposit monies. Great. Okay. Now, and like I said, it's very important that it's done in the, the right manner. So usually that means in writing and it means before the expiry of that notice period. Sure. Okay. Now you've got a couple of other options. Not recommended by lawyers, obviously, but you do see it happen sometimes. So we just had one actually. Even if you can't get finance, but you know that you've got a 99% chance, okay, and like I said, this isn't advice coming from a lawyer. It's more from a commercial point of view. If you're fairly confident that that finance is going to go through, we do see clients satisfy that finance clause, okay, if it means that if they really want that property and there's no other way to get around it, if no extension is going to be granted and they want to take that risk to proceed, you can you can do that as well. Okay. Yeah, and I guess I guess in that regards, the risk to the to the buyer is is assuming they've got a pre-approval in place, the risk to the buyer there would be if the valuation comes back short and they need to fork out the difference. It's we talked about this in the last episode. It is uncommon where if you have a pre-approval, the bank won't then lend that same amount, although it does happen. It's okay. more so if the valuation comes back short on that on that property, essentially. Yeah, that's right. And it's a bit of a tricky situation because most of the time the delays from the lender are because of that valuation. So yeah, you're sort of stepping in hot water in the way that you go there. But um, if the valuation's been done and it's been returned and you're just waiting for your, your your lender to hurry up and give you that approval, that's obviously put you in a better position to be more confident. Yeah. But like you said, if you're waiting for the valuation, obviously lawyers standing here would be telling you to um, consider all of your options before giving that notice. Yeah. And I think that's why it's it's so valuable that we're having this conversation from a legal standpoint than from a commercial standpoint as, as a buyer's agent. If we do get into this situation for our clients, we just advise them of the, the risk and advise them what the scenarios could be. And then we ultimately put the decision in their hands as to what they want to do in that regards, because it comes down to each person's risk profile, comes down to how much savings they have, comes down to how if if they can't access the money, if they can get it from somewhere else. So there's so many different factors and there's no black or white rule here from a commercial standpoint. That's right. So each person just, I, I guess, needs to get an understanding of, of their own risk profile and what position they'd be in to fork out the difference should something go wrong or access that money through a different lender should something go wrong. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it sort of works similar in terms of risk for the building and pest works the same way. So obviously you'd seek an extension. If that's granted, that's great. If it's not granted, you need to go back to the drawing board and consider, do I want to... So so sometimes in building and pests, especially for say states like Queensland, if something is found to be wrong with the property, it's quite common for the purchaser to put forward a negotiated stance to the seller and, and request something be repaired or a certain amount or an adjustment at settlement in the purchaser's favour. Yep. Now, there can be a lot of backwards and forwards about that, okay, until the parties come to a decision and agreement of what's actually acceptable for both of them. So in, in that circumstance, yeah, it, it can get a little bit pushy backwards and forwards. So I think purchasers need to, to be mindful of what is going to get the deal across the line and what they're satisfied with in terms of obviously what they've paid for the property for one. Yeah. And just be a little bit more realistic on what sellers will and won't give up. Yeah, I mean, that- in, in, in my experience, you know, as, as a lawyer and also uh, as a property investor, put it this way, I really appreciate, no, no, I'm not giving an ad like for, for Bobby's work. <laughs> we actually very appreciate in when it comes to this level of negotiation, the your bias agent really help you a lot because otherwise we are talking to the other side's lawyer. You can imagine, you know, when lawyer talk, what do they do? You know, 
you would never, that is the client would never be able to get such good results when it comes to building situation or even finance uh, extension, that kind of thing. You know, I, yeah. I, I think most people may not appreciate it. You know, I personally, I really appreciate it because I, I know what it's like, you know, in different regime and in different work and, and uh, it's hard to explain. No, I th I'm glad you touched on that, Viola, and and to give the listeners an understanding. So, so pretty much, if we need to make some changes in, if we need to negotiate different terms or need to negotiate something different in the contract, it obviously has to go through the solicitors. However, nothing goes through the solicitors until we've had a chat with the agent first, because yes. when we have a chat with the agent first we're able to have a commercial discussion to get the best result for both, both our clients. And the agent will then go speak to the seller and say, okay, I've spoken to the buyer's agent. This is what they've said. This is how I suggest we move forward so everyone can get a good result. Are you happy with that? If so, we're going to go through the lawyers. Because if you just go through the lawyers, there's going to be a lot of heads budding. And obviously the lawyer's job is to protect their clients as much as they can. And sometimes that solution doesn't come as easily. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it, it's really, and in some states, I think I mentioned it last time, they don't have lawyers acting till, you know, I, I'm not saying the comments that it's not the same as lawyers, but the concern are different, you know, so it, it left us with nobody to talk to. It, it, it's not like, oh, we, you know, we write a long email, then somebody will tell us what's going on. A lot of times it's not up to us. Rather go through the agent, let them discuss it. That's, that's very, very effective. Yeah, and you can imagine, you can imagine, one can imagine, if you don't have your own bias agent, if you're talking to one agent, now I'm not saying that that won't work, but it just worked differently. Would, would you agree, Bobby? Yes, because that relationship isn't there. Now, for you for you guys listening, if you ever do need to make changes or additions or, or, or edits to those clauses, would always recommend speaking to the real estate agent first because his job is to try work with you to get a deal done in the best interest yes. of his client, who's the seller, obviously, but he wants to get the deal done. So we would always recommend speaking to the agent, telling him what you're proposing, and then going through the legal channels and making sure the, the solicitors are aware to have those discussions together. You don't just want to catch a buyer or an agent off guard. Sorry, you don't just want to catch a seller or a real estate agent off guard by by having the solicitors essentially have those um, discussions in the background while no one else is aware. So you can try to soften it yourself by speaking with the, the sales agent first. Obviously, if you don't have that relationship, it, it sometimes it may not go as, as smoothly as, as you would like, but it's it's still going to be a better process to go that way. And also different states, they really do things differently. Again, that would need to rely on the you know, your buyer's agents working relationship with that local agent in different states. They have different concepts. You can convince them to do things otherwise. Exactly. That's right. And I think we unpacked the, the so, you know, how different every, every state was in, um, in last week's episode. So again, if you guys are looking to buy a property interstate or in a state that you're not familiar with, make sure you go back and, and, and listen to, um, listen to that one. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on 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 that specific question that I just I just asked? Are you guys happy for me to to go through to that next next point? Yeah. Now I think I think one thing about the finance clause, building and pest clause, if there is difficulty in meeting it, then do let us know advance of time. Because every time, to be honest with you, you know, we don't have all the clauses memorized in our head. We need to read it very carefully, exactly what it means for you. Because sometimes if we are delayed, 
the vendor can rescind the contract, right? Yeah. Which you may not want it to happen, right? You may not want it to happen. So we sure. will need to warn you. Are you still insisting on this? How happy are you with this, right? If if they can't give you the extension, then obviously you need to make a decision or you waive your rights. So so that 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 part is important for the uh, client to know. And look, let's say worst case scenario, we're not able to, or the buyer is not able to satisfy those terms before the due date. Is it a matter of that deposit that they've put down is then the, the vendor is in a position where they can take that deposit and rescind the contract? Uh, no, not if it is conditional on, let's say if it's conditional on finance, then the contract is conditional on the purchaser obtaining finance. If the purchaser really, you know, they don't want to move forward, then they will have their deposit refund, fully refunded. Yeah, but let's let's just say let's just say you've reached the 21 days finance date and you haven't been able to satisfy oh, that see. finance. Then essentially if you're unable to satisfy the finance and you can't complete that deal, then you lose that deposit. However, if you can then satisfy the finance after that finance date, then you proceed with the property. Is that a is that a fair explanation from a commercial standpoint? No, I, I think I, no. most states yeah. are they're different, but um, yeah. yeah, I think most states generally allow for if you don't provide notice by the the due time, that it won't necessarily lapse as such. You can give mm. notice the next day, so long as the other side hasn't terminated the contract. And if you get in before they terminate, then you can proceed as usual. So there is that sort of lapse of time there where you can still satisfy that clause yep. before the vendor has a chance to terminate. Right. Okay. But in some situations also, um, it depends how the clauses are written, but if you don't do anything by that time, sometimes, depending on the clause again, you may be mm. taken to have been deemed to satisfy that clause. So yeah, say you have waived your rights. Clause, you've waived your rights. So you don't give uh, notice that finance has been mm. obtained on time. You wait for the next day. It means that clause has already been satisfied. You can no longer rely on that clause to pull out of the contract because you didn't obtain finance. So if, right. you, if you can't obtain finance, you're in a little bit of a, a bind. You'll be in trouble. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it just depends on which state and the, the wording of the clauses. Okay, cool. That 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 makes sense. So thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I guess the next question I wanted to touch on in terms of searches, what searches should buyers be asking for from their solicitors when looking to, to purchase a property? And I know this, again, varies state by state, because I believe in some states, the searches are are included, correct me if I'm wrong. But but yeah, what are the, the searches that buyers should be asking for? Yeah, so exactly, Bobby. So each state has different requirements and sometimes a vendor or a seller is required to provide those notices or documents to make the purchaser aware. But then yep. in some other states, sometimes it's, there is no requirement. So when we're going through this one, I'll just answer in a general sense. So I won't sort of narrow it down to states, but we'll go through some of the searches and just explain why I guess they're important. Sure. So the first thing, and it may seem very, very simple, but it happens a lot of the time, <laughs> we always do a check to make sure that the seller's name on the title matches the seller's name on the contract. So the amount of times that you see that that's not the same happens all the time. It could be for a number of reasons. It could be an error. It could be that um, it's a deceased estate and it hasn't moved into the executor's name yet. And I think probably that's the only thing off the top of my mind. Sure. But yeah, or, it, it happens quite a lot. Yeah, or or, or, or or the woman's name, you know, they yeah, use their or, married name right. or their maiden name. Okay. Right. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a problem that pops up quite regularly. Okay, and it's quite an important one. All right, sure. okay, next one here. So 
title notifications. So on a title search for a property, it may list, it has an opportunity to list um, objects that affect the land. So just some examples of that we could be looking at, say easements. So it might be something like a sewer main running perpendicular down the property or across the back perimeter of the property. You can have things like restrictive covenants. So a restrictive covenant, just for example, would be something, it's a restriction on the land. So it may be something like the materials you can use for a new development or not being able to have air conditioning units visible from the street or certain color of bricks, etc. Okay. Yeah. Other things, notifications come up quite regularly. So a notification example would be something like a property being within a close proximity to, say, a mosquito breeding ground. That's that's one that comes up quite regularly in, say, Western Australia. Yeah. Okay. Um, other things, a caveat may be on title, which we need to turn our mind to because it can sometimes prevent a registration or dealing from registering. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, that's, that's for the title notification. So another search after that that we would be looking at are statutory easements that are not recorded on title. So... Like I said before, it may still be the same thing. It may be a sewer line or a sewer main. It may be something completely different. It may be for stormwater drainage. There are searches that allow us to look that up and see the location if it does affect the land. Next one here, these are the basic ones. You're looking at things like whether the property is in a bushfire zone, whether it's in a flood zone, whether it's affected by acid sulfate soils, so acidic soils, and say whether there's any vegetation overlays. Okay, there are are a lot more searches, but they would be the, the more common ones. Okay. Yeah, and oh, sorry. I'll I'll let you keep going. I was gonna I was gonna comment on that. Um, unless unless you, there was some another one you were there, going to mention. Yeah, there are a couple more. I might just there there are quite a lot, but I'll try and keep it a bit simple, and we can come back to that one. Sure. Another one here, strata reports. So this would only obviously apply if you're buying into strata or strata property. Now, very important here, if you obtain a strata report, and it would we would recommend you do it prior to signing the contract, actually or at least before the cooling off period. It provides information about the compliance of the owner's corporation and their financial status, okay, including finding out whether there are any special levies in place, okay, or any legal claims against the owner's corporation. All right. So you don't want to buy into a, you don't want to buy into a starter scheme and work out that <laughs> they're charging you exorbitant fees every quarter. That's right, um, exactly. Yeah, and they're in a bad financial position. Okay, so that, that one's quite an important one when you're talking about started property. So another important search, pre-contract dating or before you enter into a contract or at least before the end of the cooling off period is to find out whether the property is on any asbestos register. Okay, now just because the property is not on an asbestos register doesn't mean there's not asbestos present in the property. It just means it hasn't been identified. Okay, so this comes up with a lot of older properties. Chances of having asbestos in older properties is obviously quite high, which I I think most people are aware of. Okay, so it's just, um, it's really at the risk of the purchaser and what they, whether whether they're concerned or whether they're not concerned. Okay, all right. Yeah, I I think the issue of asbestos, so far we don't find too much of a problem. I think, I mean, obviously, you know, clients should seek their own advice from the builder because, the fact that asbestos exists in a residence doesn't sometimes doesn't mean anything, so long as you don't disturb it. Correct. Right. It could be on the floorboard or, or something, or you know, on on your wall, which you don't you don't touch it. So it's not a problem. That's it. Or at so, least if you're aware you know, of it, yeah, yeah, you can take steps to to minimize. Yeah, risk. and or you know, if there's a new place, obviously you don't need to worry about that. Yeah, correct. 
All right. Cool. Okay. So another one you may wish to consider also, and like I said, the timing of these searches changes from state to state, but one would be, another one would be contaminated land search. Okay. Hmm. Not often done. You may want to consider it depending on the location of the property, I guess. If it's a new property, obviously less less risk. And more so more so relevant if you're looking to do a development on, on that on that land, I, I would assume. Exactly. I guess asbestos contaminated land, basically the same like you just mentioned, unless you're actually looking at redeveloping. Um, yeah. if the property's been there for so long. Obviously, yeah, it depends what you think, but the the risk may be a little bit lower. Yeah, and that's the same with easements as well. So like just for, for you guys listening, why stormwater drain might be important, uh, why, it be, might, why it might be important to check when buying a property. It really is only relevant if you're looking to do a development on that on that block of land or put a granny flat on there or extend the house. Otherwise, if the land is too small to do any future developments on and you're not looking to, to extend or, or build over it, then it is largely irrelevant if there is an easement underground on your block of land. But it is something that you do want to be aware of because especially if it's a large block of land, it's going to affect the resale value. If you've got a 2,000 meter square block of land, but there's a, a stormwater easement that runs through the middle, your land is not worth a typical 2,000 meter square block in that same area because it's not usable. All right. Yeah, in that sense. On. But I guess client would need to get some expert advice Yeah, in, in that. It may or may not be. It may be perfectly all right if you deal, deal you with it You can get permission. Away. That's right. Yeah. You can get permission. It just depends, obviously, on the location, the, the restrictions of the easement. But, yeah, generally yeah. what you said, it, it does bring in risk, obviously, if it's transversing the property. Well, that's good to know because I didn't actually know that. So there you go. You learn, you learn something new every day. So so you, pro- you potentially could still build on a on a on over an easement. You just need to seek approval and 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 it does cause other complications, but it's not just a black or white yes or no. No, it's correct. Well, there you go. Yeah, depends okay, what just, easement it is. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of other ones. You may find, you, you may want to do searches for any proposals affecting the property. So this might include things such as wi- uh, road widening or land acquisition. They're not so uh, regularly used by us. We don't have many clients asking for them. And I guess, again, we go back to the same thing. It depends where you're buying and where that property is located and how old the property is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of other things here. I'll mention this one, but it's obviously not done often either, is a survey report. Okay, so survey report pretty mm. much comes in and checks that the property is compliant with easements and whether the property complies with council building lines and development conditions, okay, or whether it encroaches on neighbouring properties. In reality, if you're buying a property, you don't generally have enough time to engage a surveyor before signing the contract and having someone else beat you to it. And obviously getting it done between the short period between uh, signing the contract and any cooling off period. So it sounds good in theory, but um, it, it's not applicable in all cases. Okay. Not, and and not also, yeah. yeah, yeah. Most of the time it's not needed. Yeah. Not yeah. needed. It's not one we regularly advise clients to do. Okay. Yeah. And another optional search here would be for council approval. So if there's a, a structure on the property that you're not sure whether it has, and you're concerned whether it has council approval or not, it's not a regular search that um, that would be done, but it can definitely be done. But again, similar to the survey report, you're looking at a, a long turnaround time to get any results from council in that respect most of the time. So it does make it a little bit difficult to get the results of that. And also sometimes... Any contract. Yeah. I say sometimes the client doesn't want to inquire with the council because they don't want the council to know. No, exactly. And sometimes you inquire and you so don't you know, find out your answers. If anyway. there's a certain building, 
Yeah, you don't want to draw their attention yeah, to it. So, <laughs> so it's a catch-22. Yeah, they don't want to draw their attention to it. You know, there's some granny flat at the back. They thought, oh, do they have approval? We can get, we can ask the council for you. It's up to you. Yeah, and then they, they said, no, no, no. <laughs> we actually, we actually don't want you to ask. Please don't ask the council. Leave it as it is. What they don't know yeah, won't, won't, uh, they won't quite happy. Them. All right. Okay. That's fine. Yep. Yeah, I'll just finish off quickly. And then you're just moving towards searches that your solicitor or conveyancer would do approaching settlement. Okay. We're looking at things. You want to make sure there's no land tax outstanding to be owed or paid by the seller. Okay. So we want that all cleared prior to settlement or taken care of at settlement and paid. We look at council rates and water rates and make the necessary adjustments and make sure there's no outstanding fees. Okay. Same for any emergency services levies. All right. Strata fees, they're also adjusted and made sure that they're paid up to date. Rent adjustment. And I guess any outstanding work orders from the council. Okay. And so for work orders for the council, all states are different. Sometimes they're required to tell you about it. Sometimes you have to do your own investigations or searches. But that's that's pretty much the searches in a nutshell. Great. Great. Thank you, Crystal. And I guess Viola mentioned something when yeah. we were speaking earlier and, um, and, and it is really important. And I just wanted to repeat it for the listeners. And it comes down to every search can potentially cost the, the, the buyer more money and more time. And you got to weigh up the probability of issues being found. Now you can literally go and get every single search. But as I mentioned, you need to weigh up whether how you got to need to weigh up how much it's going to cost, and then you need to weigh up if it if there is a probability of it happening. If it's a brand new property, do you need to go do an asbestos search? Well, it's up to you how sure you want to be, but you can be ninety nine point nine percent sure that there's not going to be asbestos. So you just you guys just need to weigh weigh that up. But there were some, I guess, there was a minimum amount of of searches there, or or like there was a standard. There were the standard searches there, which are generally recommended in terms of those ones that Crystal mentioned first. Uh, and it's up to you guys as as buyers as to how how detailed you want to go with the searches with your solicitors. Is that is that sort of fair to say, guys? Definitely. I think the most important searches, obviously, is the title notification searches, because that's what you are buying. You know, you're buying a land right, something you can't change. You know, so so that's the most important search. And in Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, and South Australia, they oblige the vendor to provide some statutory searches to the purchaser. So for us, that is as lawyers, then the job is easier for us because the documents are here, right? Okay, good. Then we can look it up for the clients and explain. But for Queensland and Western Australia, it's uh, it's different because they don't have that statutory obligation. So the vendor doesn't have to give it to you. However, once again, I am very grateful and I truly mean that because, you know, when we work with the clients of investors agencies clients, we can always ask the agents to ask the other side for those searches and the vendors agents, they're always happy to provide it. I, I guess, I don't know why, Bobby, is it because they know, oh, good, you know, the purchasers is getting the lawyers to look at the contract now. And the law is going to advise on that, so they they pay more attention to that purpose. Yeah, that's right. And 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 look, if it's if it's an agent that if it's a real estate a sales agent that we've worked with on lots of deals within that year, like let's just say we've bought fifteen or twenty properties off one sales agent mm. that year, mm. and he's having that conversation or she's having that conversation with the seller, she's going to say, "Look, we've worked with these buyers agents. They've I've." 
purchased 15 properties off me this year. They're buyers and they, they're, their buyers, buyers don't, they're serious buyers. Their buyers aren't going to pull out of the sale. Can you just get all the documents together for this property, for this deal? And if you do, yes. the deal will go through. Whereas if it's someone that they don't know or someone they haven't worked with, then potentially they're not going to go through those extra hurdles because so many deals fall through in these different states, such as WA and, and Queensland. Uh, so so often people are pulling out of deals for almost no reason. So, I mean, that that's where that does come in handy. Yeah, because those searches, they're not cheap. You know, in Western Australia, some of them are $60, $40. You do a few of them, you're talking about a few hundred dollars. Exactly. It adds up quite quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah, not to say the time that it will take us to do the search, because lots of times there is commercial pressure. You know, they say, oh, it's really important. You know, it's over the weekend. They want to put an offer in. Someone else also bidding. But then we are supposed to give their advice. I can't give the advice without the title notifications. Otherwise, what am I advising on? Especially for Western Australia, they've got lots of like interesting things on the title. But very luckily, at least recently, I noticed, right, Crystal, or correct me if I'm wrong, they're always very willing to provide all those title documents so that it's very smooth for our clients or for us to go through and then advise our client properly. That's the case when they're engaged by the investors agency. Oh, I don't is- know whether it's the same <laughs> across the board. We get a lot across our desks where we're chasing or we have to go and get those certificates. But for That's the investors agency clients, yes, that, yeah. that is correct. That's, That's what I said. I'm grateful. I really yeah. am. You know, people don't appreciate how much because the responsibility is on us. You know, we have to give that advice, but there's time pressure. And then we try to explain, to do that, do that. Then, you know, in, in the end, it's, you know, it is better value for the client. I must say, if they have their, you know, their bias agent acting for them. Yeah, if you've got a good buyer's agent that has those processes in place and has those relationships, there are plenty of good ones out there. Um, and, and thanks for thanks for obviously plugging us. We really appreciate it. But there are as long as you've got one that's reputable and and is established and is doing the the deals that that you know they have a lot of runs on the board, then then they should have the systems and processes in place to make this quite a seamless transaction for the buyer. So thanks, guys. I do appreciate that. In terms of pre-settlement inspections within each state. When do you recommend one to be done and 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 are buyers allowed to do pre-settlements within each state? Yeah, okay. So yes, pre-settlement inspections are permitted in all states except for South Australia. Okay, so it's not uh, expressly included in any contract for South Australia in their standard contract. So it has to be specifically requested. Sure. Okay, which we obviously recommend. Now, we recommend to inspect the property in the days leading up to settlement. Hang on. So you need to ensure it's close enough to settlement so there's less likelihood of something happening before settlement, okay? But you need to allow enough time before settlement to provide enough time for issues to be rectified if they're found. So Yeah. That make that that makes sense. Thanks, Crystal. And and I guess from a commercial standpoint, like we try to generally book in the pre-settlements say two days before settlement is 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 due and and um uh, correct me if that is not is that enough time for for you guys to do what you need to do assuming that there's nothing major sort of that and major hiccups there would two business days be sufficient on your end I think that's a good time yeah because if there is you're only really worried about if something's found that's that needs to be rectified right if nothing's found and, and it's all good that's fine you may want to inspect on the day but chances are something may be found and you need that time to make sure that the parties work out what's going to happen to overcome that, whether that means rectifying, say, an air conditioner that's meant to be working and is not working, or whether they just want to provide a, an adjustment at settlement in the purchaser's favour for that. So two days out from settlement seems to be a pretty good, pretty good time to inspect. 
Cool. And just on that, I guess, again, from a commercial standpoint, it, it is extremely important to, to do your pre-settlements, even if there's tenants in the property. I guess a lot of people think that if there are your tenant, if tenants are in the property, then then if there's damage on that property, it's going to be protected from the, the tenant's bond. However, there are instances like storms or there are instances that are external to what the what the tenant may have may have done, which you still need to go and inspect on that pre-settlement inspection. So you just need to be mindful of that. I guess another thing as well that does happen time to time from from our perspective is it's the reality is if on a pre-settlement inspection, if there's tenants in the property, you can't go and lift every single painting off the wall and you can't go and lift every single carpet off the ground and empty every single cupboard. It is just not, it's not possible to do that. So you just need to be aware that you can do the pre-settlements in as much detail as possible. But the reality is that from time to time, there would be minor things like that, which may need to be addressed when that tenant moves out, which may not have been able to pick up, but we're talking, you know, a couple hundred dollars here and there. It's not regularly that that, that does happen, but it is something that does happen time to time, which you guys, I guess, just need to be aware of. And then from from our perspective, we don't we don't really see a, a, a roundabout way to to resolve a, a, an issue like that. It is, I guess, just part of part of doing a business. Like I said, you can't go and check every single painting uh, in the house. They're not just not going to allow, allow you to do things like that. Yes, that's very true. And in fact, more importantly, I think the purchaser also need to know that unless your contract strictly provides for certain things need to be in certain conditions before settlement. Which happens more of the case in Queensland and Western Australia. They would say, for example, the vendor, you know, agreed to fix something right before the settlement. In most other states, they wouldn't even mention things like that. But the important point, what I'm trying to say is you can't hold off a settlement because of the fly screen not working, right? You can't. You have to settle. You know, you can only hold off settlement if there's something wrong with the title itself. If they promise to sell you something and after all the searches we've done, hey, there's something wrong, you know, we can't proceed. Then you can delay the settlement. Otherwise, you know, generally under, under a, a sale of land contract, you can't hold up a settlement because in your pre-settlement inspection, you discover something is wrong. At the most, you may seek compensation if it is specifically allowed for under the contract. You know, otherwise, you know, it may be just it will be attributable to something, it may be fair wind and tear, or very often the vendor say, hey, it was like that before. Just like, I think there was a recent case, they don't have a knob on the oven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> and the purchaser is most upset. And we try to say, look, actually, I mean, we can't do much for you, but very luckily, the investors agency was able to negotiate some money for it. I thought it was No, amazing. they got a new oven. They got, oh, they got a new, a new oven. oven in the end. Yeah, they got a new <laughs> oh oven. my god! Yeah, I was trying to tell Crystal because they they offer quite a lot of money for this knot, wasn't it? Hundred dollars. Oh. Yeah, it was. It was fine. It was good compensation. Yeah, I said. <laughs> I said, and Chris was saying, "Oh, how can they find this knot?" I said, "If they're one hundred dollars, they can find a knot to fit. We can't, you know, we can't." But oh, they actually got a. New oven. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, well, I guess Mike must have worked his magic with that one. Yeah, so he that, was the did. First, that was the <laughs> Mike, first I'd actually uh, heard of that that one, to be honest. So, um, so Mike gonna, is a magician. <laughs> when we a step outside, I got to, you know, um, yeah, give Mike a, a high five yeah, for that him, one. I had it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> because I must say, a lot of time, really, what the purchaser think they are getting is not 
you know, what really the contract allow for. Like, for example, in, I think it's Western Australia, lots of times they say that all, the, all these electrical compliances will be in fair working order. Now, fair working order means so long as it works. It doesn't mean that it has to work perfectly, right? Yeah. If it's in New South Wales, they wouldn't even have clauses like that. You, know, they, you, you mentioned something to them, they thought you're crazy. We, we never think about something, anything like that. So, so some of the common ones, hmm. so the listeners do understand, is say overgrown lawns and gardens yeah. cannot hold up settlement. Bobby mentioned it before, paint missing off walls because, say, a, a painting yep. or an artwork has been removed, that also cannot hold up settlement. So basic things for minor damage, you may be able to withhold funds in trust at settlement for for the parties to work out post-settlement if both parties agree, which most of the time the vendor doesn't. Okay, yep. so you, you're mm. basically left chasing the seller post-settlement for any compensation, which, let's face it, it's, it's not, possible, not worth it? anyone's money. It's not worth their yeah. time. Yeah, not so, for minor uh, issues yeah. like that. Correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I guess the next thing I wanted to touch on was, uh, let's just say we, we get to settlement and the, and the buyer is not ready to settle. What are the implications of this from state to state, assuming that the seller doesn't agree to an extension at settlement? Okay, so for New South Wales, you're looking at it's usually 14 days under a notice to complete to settle. So you've got the additional 14 days. Now, if it gets to the end of those 14 days and you're still not able to settle, okay, the seller is has all rights to terminate the contract, okay, and retain the deposit. Sure. Okay. Now, it's important to note also that if you don't meet that original settlement date, the seller is able to charge you penalty interest. So that penalty interest will be written in the contract on what it is, but the general one that we always see is around the 10% mark. Okay. 10% of... Yeah, so it, it's 10% of the balance of any monies owing. So when you're talking about the balance, you're looking at the purchase price minus any deposit already paid. Yeah. Okay, you get the 10% value of what that is. Yeah. You divide it by 365 days because it's okay. calculated daily. Yeah. Okay, and then you times it by, say, you're able to settle on the 14th day and you're 14 days late after the original settlement date, it's yeah. 14 times that daily rate and that's okay. what you'll be charged as interest. Okay, that okay. makes sense. Thanks, Crystal. All right. Now, moving to the next state, so we're looking at Queensland. You've got an additional five business days. Okay. If you get to the end of the five business days, again, seller can terminate and retain your deposit monies. Sure. Okay. And also they do have the right to charge you penalty interest. Okay. Similarly, again, in Queensland, I don't think it's as high as 10%, but it does, again, depend on the contract. Yep. Okay. ACT, similar to New South Wales, you've got 14 days under a notice to complete. Similar situation with the interest and the seller being able to terminate. Sure. Okay. South Australia is a little bit different. Again, you're looking at only three business days. Okay. Okay. So if you can't settle then by the three business, so it's three grace days, I guess. Okay. Then after those three business days, the vendor can issue a notice of completion. Okay. Appointing a new settlement date with a minimum of 10 business days notice. Okay. And then it sort of works into the same way New South Wales does. If you're still not able to settle, the seller can terminate the contract. Okay. And sure. also the purchaser will be liable for interest as written in the contract. Sure. All right. Victoria, similar again, 14 business, sorry, 14 days under default notice. And same thing again, you get to the end of the 14 days, the seller has full rights to terminate. Yeah. And also during those 14 days has the right to charge interest. Sure. And the last one, Western Australia, 
this one's a little bit um, nasty. You've got three business <laughs> days to settle. And if you can't settle within those three business days, the seller can terminate and retain your deposit and also charge you interest if they agree to settle after that time. Wow. So okay. Western Australia is the most ruthless, followed by South Australia. Yeah. So just be careful. If, if What we do recommend here, if it's coming up to settlement and you know that you're, you've got a likelihood of not being able to settle, yeah. make sure you request that settlement extension earlier, as early as possible. So definitely your solicitor or conveyancer can help you with that one. Okay, and just touching here on what the normal delays are, what we normally see, it's normally always down to a lender not being ready. Okay, so make sure you get your loan documents in quite early. Apart from that, there are some odd ones that hold up settlement. Sometimes there's issues with, say, the lenders with their verification of identity for their clients that we've seen that one come across the desk quite regularly. Finance definitely all the time. I would say about 90% of cases are delayed because of finance. Either the lender's taking too long to process documents or sometimes purchases or clients take a little bit too long to get those loan documents back to the bank. So yeah. that's why we try, we try and push clients to be on time with that. I think that's that's roughly the, the more popular ones we see come across the desk in terms of delay. But yeah, definitely if you, if you can see that or you can foresee there's going to be an issue with meeting the settlement date, let if you've got a buyer's agent, let them know so they can speak to the agent or let your solicitor or conveyancer know so they can get word to the other side so they can work something out. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. Cool. Thanks for well, that question. Well, one, one, one thing I would add that um, the vendors, they can terminate, obviously, and they will charge your 10% interest, but that may not be all your liability because strictly under the contract, the vendor can sue you for their loss as a result of you bridging the property, uh, you, you bridging this contract. Yeah. Uh, say, for example, if it's in a hot market, like, oh, you breached today, you didn't settle, maybe in a month, the vendors can sell it to someone else at a similar price or even higher price. Then obviously he hasn't lost more than 10%, has he? Because he actually yeah. made more money. But if it's in a dropping market, then the vendor may be looking for you to pay him the money that he could otherwise make. Sure. So be careful of that. Plus the legal cost. You know, if they need to sue you in court, then there is a legal cost as well. So that's why it's very, very important for you know a, a property contract. Before you sign, make sure you are very, very sure that you are signing this. That's why this whole process is so important. Sure. You know, unlike sure, sure. unlike any other contract, unlike any other contract, there is something called specific performance in a land contract, which is different from just buying and selling a car, right? If you don't sell a car, or they may just pay you damages or something like that. But for a land contract, it's something called specific performance, which on the other hand also protect the purchaser. Why? Because let's say you sign up a property. I'll just make the case a bit simpler, right? Let's say one year ago on a uh, off the plan purchase. You know, let's say one year ago, or the property not so expensive as it is now. Now you don't want the developer, you don't want the developer to pull out, do you? Yeah. Right. Say now it may worth two million dollar. You only pay one and a half million for it. So there is something called specific performance. The purchase, uh, the vendor can't just say, "Oh, I don't want to sell it to you now." So, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just breach. I don't care if you sue me, whatever for damages. What damage do you have? You know, you can have. You know, you can have your deposit back, but. In, you know, in our jurisdiction, there is this concept of specific performance. 
So, yeah. you know, it, it goes both ways. Okay. All right. Thank you, Viola. That makes sense. Thanks for the clarification. Now, now, one other implication I would have to add here, which although unusual, but certainly we will pay attention to it, is that let's say if you can't settle, right? And then you need to delay your settlement. Sometimes if it's over the end of year or over 30th of June or some day like that, and depending on which stage, you have to be very careful. Why? Because of how the land tax is calculated. As, as most people would know, your land tax is calculated, let's say, on a certain day, the end of the year, of how much land you own. Let's say if you own six property, then it's accumulated, it's, it's, it's an aggregate of all pieces of land that you're supposed to pay for land tax. Sure. Right? But if if your settlement day have gone past that, because what I mean is once upon a time, it may be just the vendor's responsibility to pay his own land tax, right? Yeah. But but if it go past that, then it may become your responsibility. And under the contract, that you may be become liable to pay this land tax if you're not careful. So it and, sure. and we had one case which wasn't our client. It was referred to us because they need help. And it was it was a classic case like this. And the property, unfortunately, worth a lot of money in, in Sydney. The land tax, you know, come up to quite a lot of money. And the solicitor didn't know. He didn't pay attention to that. In fact, he did have a, a, a land tax. What do we call it, Crystal? He denotice, he, right? He had a land tax clearance certificate. Or yeah, he has a land tax clearance certificate. But land, land tax, tax was still adjusted. Yeah, the land tax clearance certificate was issued on maybe the 8th of January or something. But that only covered like prior to that few days of time. But after that, the forthcoming year land tax become payable. And then by the time the property settled, then the land tax become payable. And we're talking about like quite a lot of money. How much was it? Like $30,000 or something like that. Yeah, it was a lot of money. Wow. Yeah, that definitely adds up. Yeah, so... Okay. Well, thanks for um, thanks for yeah explaining uh, that. I mean, I, I I didn't explain it too well, but what I mean is, land tax it's a is an issue. You know, that's why when we look at contract, we always look at is land tax adjustable. We don't want it to be adjustable for our clients. If you're a purchaser, you don't want it to be adjustable. Okay. Sometimes when you buy it, before you buy it, the vendor is willing to negotiate, right? Because they haven't sold it to you yet. If you say, hey, I don't want land tax to be adjustable, they say, okay, fine, fine, fine. That's not a problem. But if they insist on land tax being adjustable, then we'll be very, very careful. Because you know that there's there's something potentially going on there. Well, that means the purchaser needs to come up with extra money. Yeah. yeah, you have exactly. to pay. And then if there is some this kind of issue, then we have to be very, very careful. Yeah, so so land tax should never be adjustable, essentially. And if someone is assisting on on selling the property um, with land tax being adjustable, then you just need to be aware of the risks that are involved there to the purchaser. Yes, normally the developer, it is those developer, they want you to pay land tax. So not just not so much of an issue um, by doing a private sale through a through a, through a um, an established property, but it's more so a, a, a developer. Yeah, the developer, they want you to pay part of their land tax. It still okay. does come up though in. Um, second properties too, especially in New South Wales is a common one. It okay, does. Another, just to pop, uh, another one just to mention, mm. Queensland too. So you, a, mm. a popular thing we see is I think their tax year, I may be wrong on this, but finishes yes. on the 30th of June. So if they know, if the other side knows that that settlement is due, say, close to that time, 
Yeah. Nine times out of 10, they'll put a clause in the contract requesting that if it's the purchaser's delay for any reason and settlement doesn't take place this side of the 30th of June, which means the seller then is liable for another year's worth of land tax, even if they only own it for three days, they will put that payment and make the purchaser liable to pay it. So it's yeah, there's a couple of clauses you need to look out for. Yeah, precisely. So that is the implication of a delay settlement. Okay. Um, and <laughs> that's why these complexities go well over my head. And that's why it's important to get a good lawyer on your side who um who understands these implications and can talk you through it. So so yeah, that's why that, that's why that's super important. The final question I wanted to talk to I'll ask you guys about and I am wary of time and respectful of your time as well is uh is essentially the trusts and pros and cons of buying property in a trust there are a few we don't have to go through every single trust but maybe just the two or three ones that we, that we do come across more often so I, I guess they are your SMSF purchases your discretionary trust if there's another one that you guys do come across often as well then let's let's talk about that but um but they're generally the main two that we come across and what do you guys see in terms of pros and cons of of, of these trusts. Yes, this I can think... be a topic for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we? Uh, do you guys want to do? Is it? Can look if you guys think that there's a lot of detail in in this, and and it can it can be unpacked. I'm more than happy if you guys want to come back on for for third episode, say in a month or two. I'm more than happy to do that. If you want to do a, a brief summary of it here and 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 do it in a nutshell, then we can do that as well. It's totally up to you. I think we can attempt, yeah, to do a, a very quick summary. But, but um, first of all, issue of trust. A lot of time we deal with tax, so I think it would be very, very useful if you know, uh, Bobby, you want to have another episode. You know, invite a tax consultant, and if for SMSF, obviously you need to have the financial advisor on this. And I think it would be a great topic on yeah. this. That that's one. The second point, I know Crystal actually prepare a lot on this but I'm not, not sure whether or not we have time to discuss all that. But at a very high level, just think of this. A trust is like a black box. It's not you. A trust is not you, okay? A trust is someone else. Yeah. So if you buy something with a trust, just like someone else is buying the property. So it sounds good because previously of tax issue and also, you know, you have separated that tax from yourself. Uh, sorry, I, I should say the risk, the risk profile. No, let's say you're very wealthy and people may sue you for no reason. But you, in fact, you don't own anything. They are owned by trust. Then, then it's good. But however, I think since I was told by a tax accountant, he says since 2004, the tax incentive pretty much like in Australia, you know, like it no longer exists. So the family trust issue is not so popular nowadays. And then on the other hand, a lot of the land tax, you know, you pay more money if you if, if the property is owned by a trust. And of course, there's maintenance. Uh, you need to pay money to keep the trust going every year. So sure. that's are the downside. So so that's what I would say at a high level. Crystal, what do you have anything else to add? I think you you said it yeah, basically looking at asset protection and, and tax yeah. benefits for the pros. Um, so obviously with the property being protected from creditors, if a beneficiary goes bankrupt. Or is the subject yep. of legal action, and yep. then obviously like it doesn't. Said, but it doesn't protect you in family law cases, right? The purchaser need to know the, the family law court will will look through the trust. Okay, but in other aspects in commercial law, yep. then it does protect yep. you. Correct. Uh, uh, well, more to an extent. Correct. Yeah, to an extent, unless of course, unless your bankruptcy trustee try to 
you know, try to um, agitate that. But in family law, it, it doesn't protect. But in other, uh, you know, let's say somebody sue you because your car or they, they allege that your car run into their something, right? Then they sue you. Yeah. And if you've got a trust, you can prove that. In fact, I have nothing. Ah, okay. Then it might be hard for them to sue you for something. Sure. Okay, cool. Was there, Crystal, was there anything else you wanted to add there? Or was that a, a pretty good, pretty good summary that we've just, uh, that we've just done? Oh, I think that's fine. I'm not sure. Maybe this is just clarifying in a more basic sense, but for the tax benefits, I think it's important just to note that the, the trustee has the discretion to divide the income between the beneficiaries in the most tax effective way. Okay, yep. so that's obviously a, a pro. I won't go into detail for that, but yeah, moving to the cons, yeah, the expense of setting up and maintaining the trust, so engaging an accountant or a lawyer to draft the documents, making tax lodgements, making sure there's documentation for meetings, it all adds up pretty quick. Yeah. Viola mm-hmm. touched on the, the greater land tax issue for trusts. And yeah, the it trusts, does. obviously, they can't distribute a loss. So whereas they can distribute the profit, they can't distribute the loss. So you run so, the risk of the property being negatively geared. Yeah, negatively geared, but you can't you can't make, you can't get that advantage. Correct. Okay. Cool. Well, look, thank you guys. I know we went well over time, but there was just a ton of ton of value and a ton of um information that we went through. Um, I guess in that first with those with those first first uh, I guess inquiries and, and and questions that we had. So again, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate your time. I'm going to put your details the Sphinx Elphi Co details when we post this on our socials and also in the in the blog. So when it gets published uh, across all the platforms, Spotify, Spotify, Amazon, everywhere else, those details will be in there. So if you guys, if any of you listeners are looking to purchase a property or looking to gain any advice or or have any inquiries, then don't hesitate to reach out. And the guys at Spring Selfie Co can definitely uh, answer your questions regardless of where you're buying across the country. Is there anything else you guys wanted to share? No, no, no. Very happy today. That's fine. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you very much, guys. Have a good day and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.